Welcome to the First Time Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Good. If this is your first time listening to First Time Podcast, let me explain. It's really, really simple. I bring on a guest. One of us has experienced something for the first time. Sometimes both of us are experiencing something for the first time. And it's really that simple. We just talk about it openly, freely. If we're talking about movies or TV shows like we usually do, uh, there will be spoilers because it's hard to talk about things without spoiling them. Uh, but, you know, keep keep an eye out on the podcast because we're going to be doing some new things. We're going to be experiencing new things that aren't just movies and TV shows. But um, we'll, of course, keep on this format also because uh, I love movies and there's not much else to do right now. So uh, today I'm welcoming an old friend I've met through the movies and uh, it's my friend Remington Smith. How's it going, Remington? Good. Hello. Thanks for having me. So... We, I'm trying to think of how many years ago it was that we met, but I know it was through the Snake Alley Festival film mm-hmm. uh, because you are a writer, director, producer, editor, cinematographer, <laughs> uh, professor, and now you have another title on your name. You're a new father, which is awesome. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. Uh, so I'm thinking, your, did you bring your first uh, short to Snake Alley Festival film, Between Shadows? Yeah, that was like my first uh, push for, I think, a more technical aesthetic uh, polish. And uh, yeah, I think there might have been one other film festival, smaller Iowa film festival to be to the punch. But I always consider Snake Alley to be kind of my first uh, festival experience. And it was awesome. So, yeah, that was in uh, summer of 2014, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was actually before I was director, I was just a mm-hmm. attendee, a film festival goer. And uh, I remember seeing it and I remember meeting all kinds of new people there and being, you know, amazed that there was a film festival in small town, Iowa, and then learning that there was actually this uh, filmmaking sort of tribe in Iowa City. That was awesome, like a community that I didn't even know about with those students and I thought, uh, I thought you had been there a lot longer because you seemed so established and kind of ingrained already you you just I guess maybe you just exuded the uh authority because I think it was the next year that um oh, I'm forgetting his name that handed it off to you right or was it L- Lonnie years? Lonnie yeah 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 I think it was the next year because that was when the woods played right uh yeah yeah 2000 and I and I believe that was my first year as director, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I pretty much went like what the first year I saw one block second year, I was a volunteer. And by the third year, I, it was my festival. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that was crazy times, you know, obviously still crazy times, but it, it's just so cool. Like I've met so many people through not just this film festival, but Iowa film festivals and online and, you know, everything is online now, but mm-hmm. um, you know, you were, an Iowa filmmaker branched out and, you know, I've loved everything you've done. And the thing is your, your work is just all over the place. You've done documentaries, you've done narratives, you've done experimental stuff. You literally just showed me a rough cut of something (laughs) you're working on. I mean, like right before we hit record, I watched something that's not even finished, which is really cool. I mean, you're always doing something with the times too. I've, I remember you did the, the short of about the, you know, the Trump thing. I mean, I don't, mm-hmm. you know, what, what was that one called? Uh, yeah. So that turned into a feature uh, length doc uh, called um, America is waiting. Uh, 
Okay. A friend of mine kind of recruited me to be a, like a producer cinematographer. So um, four years ago on Trump's inauguration, we were just running around DC that entire weekend talking with protesters and even Trump supporters and getting into the inauguration pen. And it was, uh, it was wild. So we're hoping we don't have to go back, uh, but we'll, we'll yeah. things go. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, you actually had, I don't, it's sort of in the middle of a, would you consider rubber town a feature documentary or is that? Yeah. I mean, I it mean would... de- depending on the circles, you know, it's considered a, a feature doc and uh, yeah. So I, what I always tell people, um, you know, whether it's doc or narrative is it's just uh, different parts of my personality. You know, it's like, let's do something really crazy, like shoot a, zom- a dialogue free zombie movie out in the middle of the, woods and iowa winter like when else why else would you do that unless it was motivated by a movie <laughs> and then documentary is less of that party uh side of my personality it's more that introvert that just wants to hang out and share like hey this is uh this is how i see the world isn't this kind of weird like let me just show it to you so and i guess this new project it's kind of um kind of trying to bring some of that stuff together into one place where it's kind of creative almost like a music video documentary where, um, you know, I guess even more distilled down to that dialogue free, like let's just look at images and reflect on what a crazy year it's been. So. Yeah. I mean, y- y- your two documentaries that are currently at rubber town and the Derby, uh, are both very, I don't know if I'd say politically charged. I mean, I guess so. I mean, they're both on social issues for mm-hmm. sure. Um, you know, I've, and both of them, you know, I'd still hear about from attendees at the film festivals. Um, you know, people are always talking about Remington's work and. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and then, you know, you shot your little uh, Monster Squad micro short uh, documentary that was about the uh, sort of death of film projection. And, mm-hmm. you know, and weirdly enough, we you know, you came to back to Burlington and we actually did a podcast with Andre Gower. Like it's what a weird, you know, sort of come around circle thing, but yeah, <laughs> you know, wouldn't want it any other way. It's so cool how that works out. And uh, I mean, that I, was a fun time too. I think I'm just also inspired by other filmmakers. You don't just stay in a single lane. Like I want to imagine myself as like Werner Herzog, you know, where he, you know, pops up and does some narrative work and then he does some documentary and, I mean, I, I think it's, I mean, I think it's also just a matter of like, you make what you can with what you've got. And then also just with how you're feeling at the time, you know? So, I mean, that micro short about death of projection, I literally had just started working as a professor at UofL that first week of teaching, but then also found out because I was an undergrad there that the projector, the projectors there were going to be torn down that I had used in undergrad. So it was like a race against time. Uh, that kind of forced my hand. And then, you know, getting invited to do a documentary about the protests at Trump's inauguration, why not? You know, and this other vampire movie that I was about to do fundraising for, like, I love vampire movies, but I also thought that it would be fun to bring kind of social commentary twist to it. So um, I think everyone should just chase what they're interested in. But I do know that it kind of makes things a little harder if you don't stay in one lane and just establish yourself as a single brand. But 
hopefully my brand is just like, oh yeah, his stuff is cool. <laughs> Whether you find me uh, doing narrative stuff or documentary or things in between. So, well, yeah, I think your stuff does have a cohesion of it's all gorgeous to look at. I will say that, um, you know, from your first to everything I've seen is always the cinematography's on point. Even in your tiny micro short is just, you know, gorgeous, but the, the, I remember maybe it was two film festivals ago when you gave me the first sort of rough draft of the screenplay for Landlord, and that's mm-hmm. the, the vampire movie you're working on, and you're talking about you're getting some fundraising going on. So what's the current um, – where's that at? What's what's going on with that? Yeah, so over the summer, I was still trying to stay a little bit active on it, um, you know, with – um you know theaters closed right now it's hard to justify to financiers like well if theaters aren't open how are you going to get this out and then um also just safety concerns for shooting and being covid safe um so over the summer i tried to do a little bit of legwork on getting some locations there's a this big abandoned farmhouse that we needed and so i was able to find that and so just trying to keep it going a little bit, um, but it's kind of on hold um, until things clarify a little bit. I mean, if it's safe to shoot something, then, you know, I think I'll go in with whatever I've got available to me in the summer and shoot. Um, So I think if anything, coronavirus has really clarified things. Like we, as independent filmmakers, maybe the one thing we do have that studios don't have, we don't have money. That's, that's always the, the big thing. Yeah. But we have time, like there's nobody telling us that our release date has to be in the winter of 2021. So, um, but with coronavirus, that's really shattered that illusion that like you may not always have time. And so um, I think with this project, it's been percolating for so long. You know, the pitch deck's ready, the budget's ready. I've been visualizing this movie since 2015 i mean it's been stuck in me so long that at this point um by any means necessary that first probably that first summer where it's actually safe to shoot after the coronavirus has kind of died down um i'm just gonna wage wage war and find a way to do it so money or no money we're gonna have to just get it done and then get out of my system and uh um but it'll be fun and i think that's also the reminder is just like Sometimes it's it's sometimes those first shorts, there's something special about them because you're so naive that you think you can do so much. And then you get in the mm-hmm. trench and you go, oh, damn, OK, there's there's a lot more to this. But you soldier on. And I think sometimes after you've shot so much and then you're trying to, like, scale up a little bit, you maybe start to doubt that you can pull it off in the same way that when you were starting out early on that uh, you didn't have. So uh, I, I think. The, the coronavirus has also added a certain like boldness that like, all right, man, if I just have to borrow a camera again, like in the old days and like just put together a shoestring crew, um, just like Carpenter had to do with Halloween, just like Romero had to do with Night of the Living Dead, you know, that's the nature of your first narrative short. So we'll find a way. Yeah, but Landlord's a feature, right? Yes. <laughs> oh, sorry. The first narrative feature. Okay. Sorry. I just wanted to make sure. I know. No, I just wanted I to make no. sure that. I just wanted to make sure that, you know, cause you're comparing him, you know, saying uh, with like Carpenter stuff. And I thought of him earlier when you're sort of saying, you know, everybody needs, you're talking about the value of having a brand and sort of, you know, uh, having a cohesive sort of uh, library to what you've made. But 
I know like certain filmmakers like like Carpenter, you know, he got pegged as the horror guy and he did make a couple of movies that weren't um, 100 percent horror. But I feel like he's always had a chip on his shoulder because he wanted to make Westerns Mm -hmm. and he got, you know, I mean, it's like a first world problem to complain. Oh, man, I had a hugely successful horror career. (laughs) yeah what i really wanted was a western career oh darn yeah right but you know it's like it's good to have some variety to it so you're not just stuck as the the horror guy i mean we we tend to talk back and forth a lot about horror movies we're going to talk about one tonight but um you know it's it's cool that you're mixing it up and doing a little bit of everything and showing that you're not one-dimensional i mean you think about even like scorsese you know he's he's done some really cool music documentaries. Then he goes back to a mobster movie, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, uh, he made, I mean, he made Hugo, you know, cause he wanted something for his grandkids to be able to watch. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's just good to branch out and do different things. You know, and I guess part of it too is also maybe also a lot of these other directors, they're also just exhibiting a, I mean, this same, you know, creative, like, Hey, I I just want to make stuff. Like, I I don't really care how it's unified. Um, but also just staying active. Like if what I've got is, you know, this new weird documentary music video hybrid, that is just, that's just what's in me. And then also given the pandemic, this is what was safe to shoot. Then, uh, you know, by any means necessary, I'm going to keep creating. And so I'm not just going to kind of not resting on a laurels. So maybe sometimes it's going to be documentary because that's what's available uh, at the time. And that's what's kind of got me thinking and fixated. But then, you know, once the pandemic's over, you know, it's just like, all right, it's time to finally do that narrative film and let's just get it over with. I mean, I say that like I'm dreading it. I guess I'm just, I think I'm done waiting. You're anxious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess like, uh, you know, cause we, we, we got some good traction with the script at a film festival and then a couple of my other shorts dar- narrative and documentary got some distribution deals. So I think I was also a little frustrated. Like I felt like the, the wind was really in our sails. Like, all right, I can't think of anybody else who could be as well equipped to tackle their first feature with these things behind me. Like, yeah, it's time to go. And literally that week, that's when lockdown started to happen. So I think like it's the, uh, the temerity and like the anxiousness of like, I guess back to that youth uh, naivety is just like, all right, it's, it's time to do this. Like, so that that's more the tenor. And also I guess you're bringing up a slightly sore spot. Cause I'm still thinking about it sometimes like, man, it'll be good when we could do the shootout scene. And then, Oh yeah. Should I trim this? Like it's still with me as, <laughs> yeah. as I'm like sitting and waiting, but um but yeah, it was really cool. We found one person locally who was willing to give us a farmhouse that we can use when we're ready to shoot. And so um, anyways, so yeah, I'm, I'm always working on something. And so uh, yeah, hopefully next summer we can shoot this vampire movie. So, Well, it's sort of like what we were talking about before we started recording. You know, it's like just it's like we, we just seem to always f- keep ourselves busy and Mm -hmm. i'm that way too it's like oh i have some free time i better pick up a new hobby or a new project or something but i have so many things on the back burner that i need to take care of too but um it's just you know it's like oh i have a little bit free time i can't shoot this you know feature vampire film so you're doing this short documentary music video that you showed me five minutes ago 
Yeah, or, and, uh, and, and specifically, I guess we buried the lead a little bit, like teaching myself how to shoot on 16 for the first time. Like that was, you know, you talk about projects on the back burner for a while. I've been wanting to teach myself how to shoot on film. It seemed like a, a kind of rite of passage as a filmmaker. And here comes coronavirus. And it's like, well, I mean, first, I thought it was just going to be like a test shoot for a music video idea that I was going to do exclusively on 16. Uh, and then I came up with an idea structurally for it that could use this material, not less, not as much as a test shoot, but like, oh, I think we can tur turn this into a kind of full on arc um, visually. And, uh, you know, so, it, you know, you always have stuff on the back burner because you don't know how it fits yet, but you have an idea or there's this thing you're interested in. And then the time happens or serendipity happens and you go, oh, OK, this is the time for it. Like, <laughs> so. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy to me that you're still finding time or, you know, you're still filling your time because I mean, you're, you're, you're I wouldn't say a workaholic, but you are someone who does <laughs> is constantly moving. And as a, as a new father, like that's pretty much a full-time job. I mean, talk about first time, we could have just had you on and talked about, you know, first time as a father. Cause I, I, myself, we, before Nikki and I even got married, we agreed that we're not going to have kids, but, um, I can't, you mm -hmm. yeah, man. I, I'm so stoked for you, man. Like, I, I was I was the oldest of four, and so I kind of as as prepared I think as you can get because like my youngest brother, um, he was born when I was 14. So you know I was in high school and remember changing diapers and trying to take care of him. And so I knew for I knew I'd eventually want to have kids, but also because I was the oldest of four, uh, I wanted to have a good while before <laughs> I jumped. Yeah. In so. You know, I was talking to a, a friend of mine. I was like, you know, everyone says that your your whole life completely changes as soon as, I guess that's the story usually you hear. Um, you know, as soon as I saw you when you were born, my whole life changed and da da da. And, um, you know, I was texting a friend. I was like, I, I haven't felt that yet. Like I teared up when I saw him. I was like, thank God he's here. He's safe. And my wife is okay. You know, but it it didn't feel like the whole world had changed on me. And my friend texted back and he's like, well, you know, for the last couple of years, you've probably been getting yourself ready emotionally and you've been thinking about it and getting your life ready for it. So, um, but I mean, you and my wife probably aren't wrong. She, she said very gingerly. She also thinks that maybe I'm a little bit of a workaholic and I guess my mind, a workaholic is some nineties, uh, family movie dad going to the office with a tie and, you know, yeah, not, I, I'm not, not a not a filmmaker up at 4 a.m. editing, you know, like that's just a little bit different. But I guess it is similar because <laughs> I, I think it was two or three weeks uh, after he was born. I was doing some pickup shots with him strapped to my chest around the neighborhood. So <laughs> maybe there's but, something to that. I don't know. But I also, you know, you find a balance and it seems like talking to you earlier, you know, it's like you're so casual about it. Like, oh, by the way, you know, happy Halloween. I had a kid. It's like, holy shit, you know, and uh, <laughs> and it, but it's 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 good to, you know, I just hearing how prepared and how you were, you know, grew up around it. Like I was the youngest. So, mm. um, you know, growing up, it was like by the time I was around, like my mom was sort of done being a mom. She was like, you know, learn from your siblings. Like they'll lead you, you know, and mm -hmm. I learned a lot of lessons just by watching my, my older siblings uh, make mistakes, but mm -hmm. it may be that's, you know, sort of what scares me from not wanting a kid, but um, 
it's just, man, that's, that's a big thing, man. And I'm just so happy for you and I'm happy he's healthy and I'm happy, you know, everything's going smoothly for you and having a kid during a crazy time yeah. is probably scary, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think also, um, it sounds like maybe we had similar experiences. I mean, my, 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 uh, home life was very tumultuous as a kid. And so I think it's like maybe a little bit of the inverse of that, or it's like, uh, what can I do differently? But I will say this, like, you know, I was, usually with big life stuff, I, I go around and just kind of take a poll similar, I guess, to what your mom is saying in terms of like learn from other people. And um, much like a lot of big life events, some of my other friends were already ahead of me. And so I was just asking about their advice and tips and da, 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 you know, but what's so funny is as soon as you showed up, it's like, I'm barely worrying about some of these like big far flung stuff that I was so fixated on. It's like, today, I just need to help give my wife a break, change his diaper, keep him happy. You know, I'll, I'll worry about him hating me as a teenager. Those weird scenarios that I was running in my <laughs> yeah. summer, like I'll worry about that later. So, um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of the, the balance, you know, I, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that um, I have paternity leave with U of L where I'm teaching, but I told them, some people seem kind of surprised. I was like, I'm, I'm taking the full leave. Like I'm sending my away message up. I'm going to be gone for six weeks. Bye. And I think that kind of took people by surprise. But like, if you have the benefits, like, thank God I do. Um, but then also, like, I still want to finish this film before the end of the year. So I'm still working on that. But at least as far as teaching stuff, like, I'm going to take a break from that work on this project. But then when a film is done, I kind of think about it like a film farmer. Like I work really hard on a project for a little while. And then when it's done, then I take a break. And then that's that period is like letting, letting winter kind of wash over, take a few months and then already you're ruminating on the next thing. But if it was a constant go, 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 I, I think that's the easy way to get burned out. So I think you need some time to just stay up late playing video games and going on long bike rides and just, you know, doing nothing so yeah i i always and i know it's he's sort of a controversial name to even be bringing up because so many people disagree on it but like uh i always admired if nothing else his work ethic on like rob zombie who would like write a record and record a record put it out tour that record soon as he like finished a show he had written he he wrote a movie while he was on tour then he would start shooting a movie uh wow. you know and then you know it's like that guy you know love him or hate his work like i just i've always watched what he does and it's like he sort of has this cycle that he does and mm -hmm. uh it's it's always been interesting to me watching him just because you know he's sort of in several different worlds and mm -hmm. uh you know talk about a workaholic that guy you know i think a lot of people you know he his films are pretty abrasive and um polarizing there's people yeah. who love him or hate him and i can take some of them and leave some of them but uh just always admired that sort of crazy work ethic he's had so well and uh, that was one thing i was thinking about like oh am i staying productive uh during this time um because at some point soon i'm gonna go up for tenure and you know the committee likes to see that i'm being productive you know but for me i think it's just like how how do you process the world? Like, how do you like stay sane? And so um, I think especially with COVID, 
initially the knee-jerk response was like, well, you know, I'm I'm kind of known for doing a lot of doc stuff lately and not so much on the horror stuff, you know, what am I supposed to be reflecting right now? What's my responsibility as a filmmaker um, to be helpful? And I was just ruminating on that for a while, but it's like a couple months before something comes to mind that I think might be useful. But a lot of it starts with like, how am I feeling right now? And then how do I like process this stimuli and like the craziness and then how, what's the thing that's kind of therapeutic in a way. Um, so that sounds like really navel gazy, but if anyone's seen my work, I, I thankfully I don't think it would be described as such, but in terms of the process, like it's not, I was thinking about that term of productivity and uh, I, I don't think about it in terms like that. It's kind of like journaling um, when I was in high school. It's like, how do you, how do you deal with the craziness that's going on in your life? Is it music playing music? Is it writing? Um, so I kind of see filmmaking almost as like a more difficult, uh, crazy way of journaling in a way, whether it's narrative or uh, documentary. So, well, yeah. And I mean, I, I think everybody deals with everything a little bit differently. Some people, when this kind of thing happens and not that this is sort of like a first for almost everybody, you know, yeah. where we're uh, for a long time, we were all forced to stay home and, uh, you know, some people struggle deeply with that because they just constantly mm -hmm. want to go. And if, and some people, if they sit, sit still for a second, um, you know, their thoughts start creeping up in their minds and they sit and think mm -hmm. and they have too much to dwell on everything in life. And they just, even if it's not something that they're going to use, they just had to keep busy. Like you said, playing music, even listening to music, watching movies, uh, mm -hmm. some, everybody just needs something to keep their mind going. And, it's, uh, you know, like I said, we all deal with it a little bit differently. And this podcast sort of came out because of that, because, you know, mm -hmm. with the theater closed, that's where I was a lot of the nights of my week. And now I've been working on this and, you know, it's it's a lot of fun. It's it's a way for me to catch up with friends and, you know, let I, I've heard some good stuff about like I had an episode where I had my sister on and hearing, you know, <laughs> people are like, Oh, it's really cool to listen to siblings talk about what they grew up watching in the same house. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, and I've had Nikki on several times, but I'm also trying to branch out to, to other people that I uh, don't get to talk to as often that I, I wish I could. And, you know, I don't necessarily just want to like, Oh, if we're going to talk, we have to record it or something. But, um, yeah. you know, I talk, to a lot of friends about movies and stuff and obviously have another podcast, but it's like, it's, it's so much fun to this whole first time thing is, is really cool to me. And, you know, your first time father, we're, we're going to talk about two movies that were what we've watched for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, what, what was it like? I guess I go back, like, what was it like to see your first short film on a screen for the first time? Oh man. Um, so, uh, you know, like the, the first first was like this showcase we did um, actually in, uh, right after I graduated from undergrad. And uh, I guess technically that was like the first gold star where I had finished these two crazy shorts. Uh, the only one that I'd really recommend that might be just fun for people to click through if they're listening is Hank versus Ninjas, Nazis, and a Chupacabra. And, um, you know, just like, completing these two 20 minute shorts and years later, once I got a little more versed in like the film festival world, realized like how kind of epic that is for a short for somebody to tackle. Um, 
you know, it was just like, oh, maybe I can keep doing this. Like just enough positive reinforcement. I mean, every step of the way making movies, it's like, if you're having enough fun on sets, if you did something, if you pulled off that crazy stunt, you know, stabbing your friends in ninja costumes or, uh, yeah, ninja costumes in the basement of your old high school, you know, all those little things that kind of keep you going. Um, so I think that big premiere event was, uh, the, the, the big kind of casting off. And then, you know, a big milestone was going to snake alley. It's like the firm first real film festival and like complete strangers then seeing it and, uh, having positive things to say. And, and then also just getting a sense of like where I fit, like, Oh, okay. I need to work harder in some of these areas. And this is where I can see, you know, the next project could, could be a little bit stronger. Um, but just to see a little bit of that wider ecosystem um, and you, and, and you just grow up going and seeing things in a theater until streaming comes along. And then, so to see your thing on a big theater screen, it's just like, it's always nerve wracking too, though. I guess I shouldn't downplay that um, after, you know, those early shorts where there's some technical hang up and you realize you didn't mix the sound all that great. There's always this like, sick feeling in your stomach that you forgot something and all of a sudden there's going to be a really bad cut or uh there's going to be some issue with the audio so there's like this huge adrenaline nausea feeling that hits at the same time so um but i should also plug like you guys did were such a a a great fest to have that first film festival experience with because when i went to other uh film festivals in the area not everyone had their tech stuff is down and this the theater space wasn't as great like i mean it's kind of that old uh um trying to think of what it's called um i've lost it all of a sudden but the the theater space is great uh at the capitol so um i would just in terms of being ushered into it uh, i couldn't have asked for a, a better experience so yeah yeah, I remember when I sort of I took over the film festival and, you know, I I still every year it's like nerve wracking for me to play these films because we're playing 100 movies that are all different formats and with mm-hmm. different sound mixes and different aspect ratios. And uh, it's, you know, I treat them as if they're my own films because I know people down sitting in the seats are nervous as hell and this is their big moment and they're going to notice every little thing, too. And um and my favorite thing is like when I, when the sort of block or even the day is over and I talk to filmmakers and they're just like, they're grateful that it looked and sounded good. And to me, it's like, I'm doing the bare minimum. I'm just making sure that it looks as best as it can um, because I've been to other festivals and I'm not trying to crap on other festivals. Cause I'm very, we're very fortunate that we have something like the Capitol that works with us and mm-hmm. the space, you know, and the technology and everything. Um, I've been to other ones where they're screening movies in uh, much smaller spaces without, you know, they don't have the same, uh, they don't even have a theater available. They're making do with what they can. And, yeah, you know, and, and it's like, I, it, we're just so lucky to have that space and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's just great to hear, you know, people love the experience and it it makes it worth it to me too, to make sure that everything goes as smoothly as possible. And yeah. Yeah. I won't out them, but a few months, it was like maybe four months after the screening of uh, Between Shadows at at your place that another festival I went to had screened it and it was just too dark. And then everyone's films who had a little bit of shadow, just, it was just too dark. And, 
you know, or you go to a screening and they have it too loud or too quiet, but you know, you mixed it right because you tested it on like 12 different devices. And so, um, yeah, we, we really appreciate <laughs> the care that you have at Snake Alley. And I'm constantly, you know, playing it up to people, especially any of the local filmmakers. I'm still in touch with it in Iowa. So, but yeah, well, I've, it's, it's great. I've I had mean, my... That's the thing about first-time filmmakers, though. they got to get their work out. Because if they're not submitting to film festivals, then I feel like uh, if, they're, if they're seriously interested in uh, you know, pursuing filmmaking, they've got to share the work. They can't hold on to it and keep it on the shelf. So, Yeah, for sure. And you know, just like you said, getting other filmmakers to see it. And I've, I've heard so many times from filmmakers that are like, you know, I can't believe my film's playing this block with this film or, you know, vice mm -hmm. versa. And, and and then they talk to that filmmaker and they're, you know, complimentary back and they're like, oh, no, your film was great. Like, it's so good to be in a block with yours. And, and they get that little boost of confidence, but then they bounce off each other and sort of say, well, you know, here's some advice on what I would do about sound or, you know, here's how you can work on that versus, you know, or the lights. And there, there's been so many things that people don't even know about that have happened behind the scenes at the film festival. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe two or three years ago, the first day, the first block, I turned on the projector and one of the two lamps burn out and we didn't have oh, a backup. God. So we were on one bulb, uh, just like hanging on by a string, hoping it didn't break. Uh, <laughs> two years ago, when we went to play one of our two big features, um, the disc wouldn't play after I've tested it everywhere. Oh, no. Uh, and so I had to run home in the rain, physically run to my car in the rain, drive home and get my player from home, plug it in. Uh, luckily, um, Brian O'Halloran from Clerks was there and he jumped on stage to buy me time and did a stand-up routine. Whoa. Uh, so that was sort of cool, but um, we still had issues. But anyways. Yeah, I was, I was a projectionist for three years before I, I started making movies too. So I think that's also where some of the anxiety comes from is I know what it's like when you've messed up a screening in the tech booth and you're like, Oh God, what did I do? So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, I still stress out every time because you know, technology is, is wild, but um, yeah, last year and, and piggybacking a little bit on what you were saying there last year was the first year um, that I'd gotten into a film festival that was like Academy Award qualifying and to see the Derby, the short doc I did on the, the Kentucky Derby to see that, in the same block as like things that were produced by the New York times. And, um, you know, just among these bigger films that were better financed, you know, or even some film festivals that I was at last year. And I was like the one filmmaker from the Southeast, uh, you know, that was just kind of wild because they're like, I was at a film festival. Um, I was at film quest and it was mostly a lot of LA folks who are working with SAG actors and whatnot. And like, I think I, there was one pair of filmmakers for, there were from New York. And then I was like the one rando from Louisville. So uh, there's also like this badge of honor kind of thing. Like if you're trying to uh, kind of punch above your weight class, because you're not just immediately flocking to the coasts or um, Atlanta, you know, you're just like, no, I want to make movies where I live and try and help other people where I live, make movies and then see if we can kind of build up. So that's also kind of fun when you get to when you start to do better on the festival circuit like that talking about first anyways yeah yeah i mean that's what we're here to talk about and um i guess we've been chatting long enough about everything else we can sort of start jumping <laughs> yeah. into the tonight's topic um 
this is it's interesting to me because I really had no idea, no expectations. I may, I think I had seen the trailer, but I didn't remember much of it before I watched the movie. But I had started to hear some good buzz about this one. Mm-hmm. And tonight, the first movie we're talking about is The Wolf of Snow Hollow. John, I'm an alcoholic. I've been in the program now for six years. Sober for three. This is scary. It's new. I never saw a body like that. There's going to be a lot of late nights and overtime because of the brutal murder that happened in town. And I didn't want to set up expectations that I can't keep. Our expectations of you are very low. Spans the bites are gigantic. Same as the distance of the paw prints. It's a wolf. Or maybe it's a werewolf. No, let me just make this perfectly clear. There is no such thing as werewolves. Our killer is a guy, and I'm gonna find him, and I'm gonna kill And we're gonna bring him to justice. We have every reason to believe that this monster will show up again tonight. I won't ask you to pray with me because of the goddamn lawyers. Where were you? Where were you? John, none of you talked to me once, okay? They're saying it's a wolf. No, it's a man. When do I get to be right about something? Do your job! Do your job! I am begging you! You want to be sheriff? How about we start acting like one? Okay, so The Wolf of Snow Hollow, written, directed, and starring Jim Cummings. Um, Like I said, this one wasn't even really on my radar. The first I'd even heard about it was it was playing locally, I think in September, uh, with American Werewolf in London at the drive-in about two hours from here. And I was like, oh, there's a new werewolf movie. So I looked (laughs) it up, saw the trailer, and I was not familiar at all with Jim Cummings. I saw Robert uh, Forrester in the trailer and I thought, well, that's interesting. I, you know, cause it was after he had passed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I was, I really was not prepared for the tone of this movie um, mm-hmm. for anything. I, I really was <laughs> blindsided by this. I thought it's just going to be another sort of low budget uh, werewolf movie. And that it was not like, mm-hmm. what did you go in thinking? Like what, what was your knowledge prior to watching this? Yeah, um, I think I had seen the um, short version of Jim Cummings' uh, short film, Thunder, Thunder Road. He later adapted that into the feature, and, and I guess we're going to talk a little bit about that because we both watched that for the first time as well. Um, so I kind of knew about that, and I feel like Jim has started to become, maybe this is just in more uh, niche filmmaking circles, but kind of become a, a kind of mythic figure because he has been trying to do stuff independently and, and stay very active on social media to get your stuff out there. And so I had kind of been following um, him on and off. And so when I saw they had this like 
werewolf movie that was coming out during the pandemic and I saw the trailer, I was really excited. Um, and I was curious, but I, I think because at the, at the time I had still only seen the short version of Thunder Road, I didn't have a, a total um, established understanding of what his aesthetics were. And so um, now that I've seen Thunder Road, the feature version on top of that, um, there's really an interesting through line. So, but, you know, staying on Wolf of Snow Hollow, man, like it was really interesting. And, you know, all of his movies now I want to rewatch because there's a lot of different layers to it to explore because he's not just like spoon feeding you some of the thematic kind of undertones that he's exploring, um, which I think is what made it so fun. I mean, and so interesting beyond just like, this kind of police procedural trying to track down this werewolf that's killing people. So, yeah, I, I mean, I was, it's very rare that I sort of just pop in a movie uh, and, and it's happening more now because of this podcast, but usually I have to have some motivation to watch something new. Mm-hmm. I, especially right now, I tend to go towards things that I'm comfortable and I've seen and I, I'm sort of lazy with it, but mm-hmm. uh and and to be honest, my first impression, because I saw it was playing a drive drive in with American Werewolf, I was like, oh, this is one of those movies that the studio um, was just going to put on VOD, but they saw that they could make a little bit of money at the drive in. So they threw it out there and it's not going to be mm-hmm. anything special. And then I'm like watching this thing and I'm like, this is like, you know, this is fantastic. Like the writing's really good. And, you know, the performances are really good. And this is not even really a werewolf movie. Um this There's is more about there. I think you can right. smell that and feel that with like a good film. Like they are taking you along and you go, okay, okay. What, what you yeah. got next? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, this is really a move more so a movie about the relationship between a, a struggling alcoholic and his father and his life sort of going to shit and mm-hmm. trying to balance out everything going bad at once in his life, his, <laughs> his, and, and it, it is a weird tone in that it's, it is a dark comedy and yeah. there are moments, but you, it's like, you almost feel bad for laughing, but mm-hmm. the way his, his tone and I ever, you know, I watch this obviously. Then I, of course I go to the internet and I find out all the stuff you had just talked about that mm-hmm. Jim is sort of this indie darling and his, uh, he had the short thunder road, which got, you know, pushed to a feature, which was a big success um, and mm-hmm. got a lot of praise. And then he went and won an award at Sundance, you know, and it played at, I think it won at uh, South by Southwest also. And then mm-hmm. he was sort of handed, not, not really handed, but he got a beefier budget for his second feature, which is this, The Wolf of Snow Hollow. And, you know, it, it's sort of, we we're talking about earlier, it's like, you know, you were getting ready to, uh start shooting <laughs> your your movie and then pandemic hit i can't imagine what it's like to make something and then the pandemic hit and they're like oh we're just gonna throw it out and and hope it sticks at drive-in theaters yeah. during a pandemic it's gotta yeah. but but like i listened to him on a podcast earlier today and he's very very go get ear like he just is optimistic about it um positive attitude i, I loved it like Mm-hmm. He was not, he didn't let it get him down. Like he was just happy that he got to make this thing. He's already got his, his third feature already has wrapped, done, edited, finished. Oh my gosh. I didn't know that. Jeez. Yeah. He filmed uh, another movie in November and December and he is already ready to, to get roll. And oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah I'm I mean, for, for, for anybody who doesn't know, I mean, usually the cycle for film festivals is you're, you're submitting 
throughout kind of for like a year, at least for, you know, smaller productions. Maybe if you've got a studio behind you, you submit to the biggies, get the release, and then you set a, a date with distributors. But, you know, you're spending a year and I mean, I think I spent something close to $2,000 maybe on submitting the Derby uh, in 2018 to 2019. So I couldn't imagine, I've talked with other filmmakers about this, like I couldn't imagine submitting your work and trying to get it into film festivals in 2020 and then the pandemic hits and you've put all this time and money and effort into the film and then the submission process, you know, much less, you know, Jim's second movie and his first studio film, it's coming out in the middle of a pandemic when you spend all this time on it. I mean, just the heartbreak, I, I could imagine, but I've heard that uh wolf of snow hollow like it's gotten good reviews uh we like it um but then it's like doing really well it was like ranked it was like the top horror film on itunes and some other places so hopefully it doesn't do anything to kind of dampen things but that's just some kind of behind the scenes stuff for anybody to know like it's hit everybody across all industries and that's one of the ways that the pandemic has kind of screwed over you know a year's worth of uh, filmmaker industry stuff that would normally happen and help launch people. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, I can't imagine like he had this huge momentum going with Thunder Road. Like I said, mm -hmm. award winning, everybody was waiting for his next feature. He gets this made. He finally gets a big budget. He gets uh, Robert Forster in it, you know, and, yeah. and who is in Jackie he, Brown. If people aren't kind of, he's the kind of bail bondsman in Jackie. Yeah, Brown. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it just seems like they, I don't know. It just, I, I can't imagine that like build up and then for it to, it's like, but what do you do? Do you sit on it and wait? You know, it, everything's yeah. in a weird flux right now, yeah. but, uh, I'm, I'm just, I am glad that, you know, it's getting, you said it's, you know, one of the top downloaded movies on iTunes and horror, and that's fantastic. And, um, I'm, I'm slowly starting to see some buzz on it, on the, the horror forums. I also, to be honest and not to sound like, a dick but it seems like not that it would not necessarily fit into the um those like horror groups that are diehard like want to see like this seems more like a an artsy type uh like well, the audience the audience it's, it's you not know. like an a24 horror film though. no no I feel like that that's the, that's the artsy realm but it it is i mean i guess it does feel more a little bit like in the realm of uh it's walking that line between uh, police procedural and Rosemary's Baby, I would say. Like, is it Zodiac or is it Rosemary's Baby? I, I don't know if we're diving into spoilers just yet, but um, I guess I, I just mean like, and not with plot points or anything, but like there's a there's a gradual subtlety in Rosemary's Baby that I think is like kind of going on here where um, aside from the fantastical elements of uh, both of those films, like it's still like this drama at its heart, you know? So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, I, I, like when I, when I watched this and I was like, you know, that lead is really good. And I looked it up and I found out he, he wrote it and directed it. And then, you know, that's sort of his thing. He did that with Thunder Road too. I was just blown away. Um, the movie sort of kicks off. It has this couple, they're on a trip, uh, in the mountains, sort of a snowy area. And, it's revealed that he's that they're dating. He's going to propose to her. Mm -hmm. uh, they go to this bar, this dude, this sort of douchebags, uh, you know, is uh, dropping some homophobic slurs and he stands up and sort of uh, 
gets a little confrontational with them and then they go back to where they're staying. Uh, she goes out to turn on the hot water and she is brutally murdered by something. And uh, that's sort of where it kicks off. And then we that's where we meet John Marshall, who is played by Jim Cummings. And uh, he's at an AA meeting so that we are learning that he's got a problem. Um, and he's talking about wanting to rent a backhoe and drive it slowly through his ex-wife's house, <laughs> which is one of those right away. It's that, like d- weird dark humor that he has. He sets the tone right away for that because it's it's funny, but it's sad, too, you know, because he's at an AA meeting and it's clear, you know, he's he's got issues mm-hmm. with his marriage. And that yeah, relationship, also, but... like, do we have to worry about him yet? Like, we don't know who he is yet. So we're like early on, we're like. Wait, is he just being silly or is this like a sign that something's really wrong here and he's actually serious about it? So, yeah, and it's a slow build over the movie. We aren't going to go beat by beat because if you've if you're listening to this, I recommend you check it out because we're going to spoil it. But Mm -hmm. if you if you rather have it spoiled, um, I'm not going to go bit for bit because you should watch it afterwards. But the story is basically he's this cop. His dad is the sheriff. And his dad should have retired long ago, but he's sort of stubborn. Like, it reminds me a lot of my dad. Not that my dad was a sheriff, but um, he he worked until the moment that they forced him out because he didn't know anything else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's been times where I had to physically drive my dad to the hospital because he refused to go to the doctor. And it's like, I can can sort of relate in that relationship where it's like, you know, his dad's so stubborn that he's actually causing him way more stress and way more, uh, you know, he's actually becoming part of this problem yeah um getting more in the way than than he is helpful but you know he's got that relationship with his dad and then he's obviously got a uh stressful relationship with his teenage daughter who he's not really there for because he's trying to figure out what the fuck's going on with these murders because they sort of talk about before there was very seldom a murder and they're on this this snowy sort of ski town and now murders are happening every night and um some of the cops are sort of, you know, insinuating it could be supernatural, like a werewolf. And, and you know, it's it's sort of almost a disservice that we are we go into this with the title of The Wolf of Snow Hollow because it uh, we know this right away. So, like, the opening scene was sort of like scream to me. I'm like, I know we're, we're getting we're setting this up just for this one of these people to get murdered. Yeah. You know, that opening couple, I knew they weren't going to last because, you know it's a werewolf movie as far as we know (laughs) um and you know it's robert forrester if if i haven't mentioned his name five times plays his dad who's a stubborn cop and he's fantastic in this um just a really good cast and you know he he struggles back and forth we have um what's her name ricky lindholm is fantastic uh, I thought though this is the thing that really made me wants makes me want to rewatch it because it's like the whole film is kind of unofficially fixated on like how inept Jim Cummings' character is and most of the men. <laughs> and like, she's the obvious person who should be running things, but like everyone kind of keeps sidelining her. And I just felt like there were these, all these little like nudges about just like how sidelined women get. Uh, oh yeah. It, it, and I just thought that was great. And then especially like as a deconstruction of like, uh, this guy who really wants to be the sheriff, but he's just not up for it at all. And um, and there's like a humor about it too that uh, the way we're describing it, 
or maybe this is just the way I've been thinking about it. I just haven't said it out loud. Like it's definitely that black comedy to the point where it feels awkward, but it's never oh, absolutely. Made, but it never gets to the point of being awkward like The Office, which is very hard for me to to watch. So like it's a weird, delicate balance where um, th- there is a certain signature style to this like writing where it's very serious, and then like the this kind of goof doofusy character will throw this line aside that's like are you serious and it's so silly for the moment like it's just not the time to say that thing that you just like can't help but laugh a little bit but then it gets back to the serious it's uh it's a really interesting balance in in the writing but um but yeah the 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 uh, what's her uh what's the character's name in the uh for the woman who's also a deputy Oh, yeah. uh, Detective Julia Robson. So Julia, Ricky yeah, Lindholm. She's, yeah, she's the most confident of the bunch, and yet she kind of keeps getting shunted aside. I just thought she was really interesting and in, in the way they kind of framed her. So, Yeah, and listening to him, uh, Jim Cummings, talk about this movie, I listened to a podcast today. It was really interesting. Uh, he talks about how this is sort of uh, showcasing toxic masculinity in, in mm. the workforce and, and je- life in general about how you know, all these guys are sitting around, you know, basically fucking up and not getting things done. And she's like the only sort of centered character, you know, uh, his character, uh, John is failing at, he's trying to manage everything and failing at everything instead of focusing on one thing, you know what I mean? And yeah. And I think even like giving himself the latitude to not feel like he has to be, this idealized version of himself in a way like he has to be like the best cop and I I don't know there's there's like this instability where he's supposed to be this like weird version this like exaggerated superhero version of himself to everyone and 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 then it seems to kind of go hand in hand with his drinking like yeah you're not going to be that great of a dad to your daughter because you keep trying to be you're not really connecting with her. It's like you're talking over her or you're like talking past her. You're not just like be here in the moment. It's like you're he's always behaving towards some other version of himself instead of just being himself. Um, yeah, like, he, yeah, he's got to uh, live up to this image like that he has in his head. Yeah. And well, that's uh, interesting that he said that in the in the um, podcast. I was wondering if I was like maybe reading too hard into it. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> he, he also talked a little bit about how the comparing the similarities between a werewolf and an alcohol alcoholic, because you know huh. uh, how like a werewolf will, you know, he turns into a wolf and he fucks everything up and wakes up and he doesn't know what happened, but he knows he's really fucked up a lot of stuff. Whoa. And it's like, you know, and, and so, <laughs> yeah, an alcoholic does the same type of thing. Holy so there's shit. yeah yeah and uh you know I, I really want to watch this one again just because i yeah. i now that i'm sort of more prepared for the tone of it um i i i've seen a lot of um critics sort of comparing his work to the coen brothers and i don't think that's really huh. right or fair i i mean other than you know quirky comedy but i don't see the humor as the same to me this is a little more dark I mean, Cohen's have some dark, obviously have some dark humor and stuff, but I, I, I don't think it's necessarily fair to put him, you know, in the same category, but I can see a, some similarities. I guess I could see him on the spectrum. Like in some ways, 
I guess uh, the Coen brothers, it, it is more life and death. And this seems like more existential, but it is still like pretty, pretty dark dialogue. But I'd almost say that Jim Cummings is having more fun uh, and is a little, a little looser. But then again, I guess my go-to movie when I think of the Coen brothers is actually like Fargo and No Country for Old Men. And those are really fucking heavy movies. So uh, they also have Raising Arizona and The Big Lebowski. So, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 They filmed this in March of 2019 in Utah. Um, mm-hmm. I, they shot for 23 days and he had a budget of $1.9 He talked a little bit about that and how he was like super late to the pitch meeting and him oh, and his God. producer were like running and they were, you know, in like suits and stuff and they were super sweaty and they arrive and they get in the meeting and basically they sat down and the uh, company was like, yeah, like we read this. We love it. Like, let's make a movie. And it was like really that simple. He's like, oh shit. Like, you know, he was freaking out. And then, wow. you know, he, he, it was, I think you'd really enjoy the, his, his insight into it because he talks about the going from a, uh, $200,000 budget on Thunder Road to 1.9 million. He's oh, like, God. you know, the stress of it, but also like, you know, it was really hard for him to get over little things. Cause he's like, we're doing uh one of the kill scenes with uh, the wolf. And it's like, Oh, you know, I'd really like to make this scene sort of bloody and, and crazy. And they're like, dude, you have like the budget to get five buckets of blood. <laughs> and he's like, I could, he's like, it was really cool. I could, I could buy five buckets of blood instead of one. <laughs> You know, and yeah, and uh, he talked a lot about his influence from uh, he loves David Fincher and Alfred Hitchcock. And hmm. he, he, he talked about the um, how he wanted to show the wolf at the beginning. So when the big twist at the end came about, mm. um, it, we sort of we're not left wondering uh, the entire time. Like it's even a bigger twist because we, we have in our mind that it is a werewolf. We've seen the werewolf. Yeah. It has to be a werewolf. And yeah. um Big spoiler, uh, heads up, you know, again, if you're, if you're not listening, but it is not a werewolf. It's a guy in a werewolf costume, which I was not sure what to think about that. The first reveal, I was like, wait, what the fuck just happened? Huh? I was, I was into it. I, I think everything else had felt so grounded and real that like it kind of worked for me, but I could see maybe that is so late stage uh, to, to go. No, nah, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was completely cool with it. I just, I, it took, it completely took me by surprise and it took me a second to process it. Uh, when he was at the house, like, I, I think sometimes I maybe, uh, not dumb isn't the word, but like movies usually just get me. Like I, yeah. I'm usually tricked by them. I'm, uh, yeah. I, and maybe it's because I just, I do not want to know what's going to happen. So I yep. try not to think too far ahead. I want to be surprised. So, yeah, you know, the scene where he goes and he's talking to that guy, and looking back, it's pretty tense, you know, and they're sitting in the living room and the guy's super nice, almost too nice to him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then he's, he steps out in the porch and he puts two and two together and knocks back on the door and the guy won't open his door. And, you know, yeah. that's, there, there's some really scary stuff in this movie too. It, it has great scares, laughs, and some emotional stuff. Yeah. And then I think that was like, it's a really interesting moment when that shifts in the movie because, it's like he he almost gets to be that idealized like hero cop kick it in the doors being a badass. Um, right. But then he is fucking just lost everything else, you know. So it's like is is this really worth it? And then like 
also, I guess it also leaves the question, like, just because you had a shootout and you caught your suspect, does that mean you're, like, a good cop and you're actually good at what you do? Like, right. It, it, in some ways, I guess, like, when I talk it, out, uh, talk it out, I guess it is similar to the way that, like, taxi driver, like, you you want to be this hero and you're talking about all this violence and whatnot, but when it actually, like, plays out and we actually know the truth of the matter with, like, something like taxi driver and even this, like, you're really kind of crazy you're not really a hero but um but yeah i thought that that shift worked really well for me because it's like kind of scary and intense out of nowhere when the rest of it does feel like uh okay maybe this person is disposably going to get killed and maybe the werewolf then starts to go after some people we know but still it's like okay when are they going to catch the werewolf and then that moment happens and then we find out it's not a werewolf you're like holy crap like a whole lot happens very quickly and i think when you talk about when you tell me that his biggest influences are like Fincher and Hitchcock, I can kind of see that. Um, so yeah, I'll have to listen to this podcast episode that he did. Yeah, he talks a little bit about how uh, the process of how this went was that he had this idea of this guy that dresses as a werewolf, and they worked backwards from it. So he had the end and wanted to work backwards. So he's like, it went really fast. Uh, Hmm. You know, he said he wrote it, uh, the first draft in five days. It's an, it's an, it was a 95, 91 page script. And, uh, mm-hmm. he, he didn't do a whole lot of rewrites and he, he talks a little bit about using his phone and the reminders app on I, on his iPhone to remind him on set to like, Oh yeah, I had this idea about this shot. Like it's, it's sort of, <laughs> co- it's very interesting nice. to hear his process. And I, I found it fascinating. Like as uh, someone who loves the behind the scenes stuff, I, I just love hearing about how somewhat, how the process was made and, and how the movie, you know, was made behind the scenes. And um, he, he talks a lot about uh, watching Mindhunter and how he sort of fell in love with, you know, learning about real life killers and, and serial killers and how their minds work and stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's interesting because we don't really learn a lot about this guy's background. We yeah. don't, you know, there's not uh, really a whole lot there to work with. We just sort of get a big reveal at the end. And mm-hmm. it's more so focused on his character and his relationships with his dad and him struggling. And I, I thought the scene where his uh, daughter is almost killed while she's like making Oof. out with the dude in the car was so yeah. funny, but also, you know, very, oh, just a nice sort of character break for him. Like it shows, you know, his real struggle. He's there. He almost gets to werewolf. Do I go after the wolf? And then his daughter's yeah. like, you know, you don't give a shit about me. And it's like, he can't catch a break. You know, he, he just saved his daughter, but then she's like, you know, realistically, she's like, you know, you don't give a shit about me. It's true. You know, yeah. he's like, go put on some pants. What are you doing here anyways? You know? Yeah, get back in the car. That was like the perfect example of that. Like, this is not the time to say some of these things that you're saying right now. And right, and and like, I think that's like a perfect encapsulation of like, who does he want to be? Because like, he he wants to be these things, and there's a lot of talk about being these things, but he just doesn't realize the work that goes into it. Like, you're gonna make choices that aren't gonna be self-serving. Like, they have to be selfless. So you got to maybe let the werewolf get away because you need to take care of your daughter who is like almost just murdered and is obviously not okay. Or the other, other things like that, where it's just like, you, you have to put in the work. You can't just ask for it. Um, so, you know, yeah. So it's it, like, where does, yeah, uh, no, I was going to say, where does the line, you know, he, he's 
a dad and a and a police officer like where does that line you know mm-hmm. cross and what what side of that line does he have to stand on which then leaves it kind of interesting that like i i, I can't remember now uh as i'm thinking about it if he kind of stumbles into the reveal at the end or if he kind of goes there no he he goes there knowing so there is some t- detective work there but it just makes me wonder you know is this is this what he is he getting that version of himself that he's wanting like yeah okay i'm the big hero cop but then yeah i've lost everything else so and in that way i guess it's a little walter white ish like he always just wanted to be the king of something and then he finally gets to be the king but you know he's lost everything else so yeah 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 um the producer Matt Miller had worked on a project with Robert Forster before. And so he went ahead and sent the script to his agent and uh, Jim Cummings said they expected a polite no, Mm -hmm. but Forrester read it and loved it because he viewed it as a dramatic movie about a father son relationship and complications of aging and health. Mm -hmm. So it's really cool that, you know, you never know who you can get in your movie, you know, and might as well try. And it's, it's cool that, you know, it's sad that it's his last movie, but it's really cool because uh, what a great actor and, you know, a, a great movie to go out on. And, and their relationship is, is uh, you know, a, a something that drives this movie and just sort of adds a little something to this character that he's built up. Yeah, I mean, it's similar to uh, Carpenter's story about getting Donald Pleasance in Halloween, like... Yeah, weren't really sure if they were going to get the guy that was in the Bond movies and then like he shows up and they're like and then he ends up wanting to be in every one of the movies as long as he was kicking. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that story is like uh, they try to get Donald Pleasance and his Donald Pleasance's daughter loved the soundtrack to um, oh, Assault on Precinct right. 13. Yeah. And mm-hmm. she was like, Dad, he, he has like he makes really cool music like you should do his movie and, you know, Loomis or not Loomis I uh Pleasance was like you know yeah I guess I'll do it and they had like one or two days with him shot everything they could and yeah it is it's crazy like you know it it became a huge thing for Carpenter Halloween was you know his blowout success and then you know unfortunately Pleasance it was sort of like on his way out and you know he ended up doing all the the next five or four sequels and you know he literally his last film was Halloween six but um mm-hmm that could be a whole different podcast, but yeah. 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 Sorry. I, I got us on. Oh no, no, no. That's our, completely okay. John Carpenter tangent, but yeah, that's it, it, it's funny. I mean, I don't, uh, I don't want to overstay or, or over, uh, I guess, speak my experience or anything, but just some of the things you're talking about, it just, in terms of the prep and whatnot. I mean, I have a Google doc floating around somewhere on my drive about like notes for directing different scenes of the scripts for the vampire movie. And, you know, there are a couple of like smaller supporting roles that I was like, Oh, it'd be great if we could get this actor to help get some, you know, it's just like all the same stuff that it's funny. I I mean, I guess like everyone's kind of drinking from the same well in terms of like the experiences of trying to make something uh, uh, on an independent budget. And uh, so a lot of this just rings really (laughs) true, whether it's Carpenter to Jim Cummings, you know, to me trying to work on this project before pandemic hit. So um, it all sounds very familiar. Well, yeah, that's, you know, I'm so glad that I have you on this episode to sort of talk about that because 
um we're just not going to talk about you know uh, uh like a you know major studio movie or something like you can relate to this you know and it's great to hear that you know you you can sort of say that you've had the same experiences and stuff uh listening yeah. to him talk about it like they actually shot this in winter in utah and they Damn. struggled because there was like actual blizzards in some shots and then they'd go to shoot you know the next scene and the snow would shift and they're like yeah. you know what we have to do so they have these big fans out blowing you know snow on top of the snow and uh you know he said it was awesome but also one of the hardest things he's ever done and Con- uh, continuity is a real pain in the ass yeah i mean when we were shooting the woods we just got really lucky that um you know we were shooting all exteriors winter in iowa for anybody who hasn't seen it but tad obviously he programmed it um you know we got lucky with things like continuity like that where God forbid, if we were in the middle of shooting a scene and it had stopped snowing, I'd probably have lost my mind because we have no money. And, you know, all of a sudden you have cameras freezing on you and you have to wait until they're ready to come back on. Uh, hand warmers so people don't get frostbite, um, getting stuck in the snow. I mean, uh, yeah, I think that was the other thing that was cool about this movie is, um, I mean, I can't remember the last werewolf movie I saw that was during winter or out in the like it just the setting itself just felt like a, a departure and kind of a fresh take on the genre so i think like right from the get-go i was kind of intrigued and i think this is another good example of why you should get away from just shooting in the same places that everyone else gravitates towards because you know aside from westerns uh i don't know how often you see utah you know <laughs> in right film. um so that also gave it like an interesting character and I kind of fear because of the coldness and um, something about like night uh, darkness against snow. There, There's just a kind of cool contrast to it that I think kind of lends itself uh, in, in this um, specific film to like the genre where winter could maybe be always associated with like Christmas, but I guess we both love horror and we know there are plenty of horror movies kind of set during Christmas, but it's never, I don't think a lot of people think of it as maybe a go-to season. So I I thought that they also shooting it in Utah also gave it its own character. That was cool. Absolutely. And I was stoked uh, that we watched this after Halloween. Uh, At least I, I watched (laughs) it like a week after Halloween and I was like, Oh, you know, I'm I'm glad I'm watching it after because it does have some uh just a slight tinge of Christmas cheer. There are some Christmas lights and lots of snow. Mm-hmm. Um and I am a I would say probably at least one of my top three favorite horror subgenres is Christmas horror. And <laughs> I'm not this isn't necessarily this is not a Christmas movie, but um <laughs> it always is sort of fun to see that stark you know, it's it's a season that's known for cheer and happiness and have having bad things happen during that time is, you know, a sort of fun contrast, I think, in films. Yeah. Have you seen The Great Silence? Uh-uh. It is a Western from, oh, what's his name? Is it Corbucci? He's kind of like uh, Sergio Leone's, um, I guess, kind of um, second, it was like Italy's second string uh, um, uh, Italian Western director. And so, um, I, I guess someone showed a clip or there was a re-release of it. Um, but it's a Western that was all shot. Actually, was it in the States? No, I mean, it must've still been in Italy, but it's all shot in winter and, uh, um, 
Tarantino said like it was a big influence on the hateful eight, you know, as a, as a, a yeah. winter Western and that movie is amazing. And it just, it feels so different because it's supposed to take place in this like um, pass, I think somewhere out West, somewhere in Utah, uh, this mountain pass that people are stuck in and it's winter and they're trying to get rations. And um, it's like a whole other kind of perspective on the Western when you change the seasons and it's not just baked desert. Um, so I think that's, that's the fun thing with horror when you do the same, where it's just like, oh, it's not the usual fall or maybe summer, but you know, this is supposed to be the domain of, uh, Frosty the Snowman, but then there's Frosty the Snowman horror movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's always something like a eerie stillness about winter. It's like the yeah. snow, um, like the snow mutes everything just a little yeah. bit. Yeah. It's that it's like a a weird silence on when you step outside at night when it snowed. It's mm-hmm. it's a whole different. It's like a whole different world and feeling. This film really captures that pretty well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and especially like mountainous terrain, and but it's still kind of softer mountainous area, so it feels like wide open, but you're still alone. Um, I mean, honestly, yeah, that feeling. There are a couple of nights in Iowa when we were living there that uh, I would go out in the winter. I'd be like, how did people? make it like it's just yeah. so cold and like this is devoid of life and god like how, how did people make it so uh, you know there, there's a little bit of that vibe uh in the film too so you know now that it's after halloween it's like perfect time to segue into like christmas horror if you're looking for something that's not jingle all the way yeah i thought it was like the perfect post halloween horror movie uh just i don't i i guess horror movie i i even struggle to call it a straight horror because it has definitely has you know some comedy i mean not that horror movies can't have comedy but uh i don't know it's just this is is a good genre question because i struggle with this Uh, do you consider silence of the lambs a horror movie yeah i mean there's a cannibal there's terrifying stuff so i get yeah this this would count too i would say but cannibals are real serial killers are real Frankenstein. Okay, now I sound like that principal in the Monster Squad. Like, monster uh, science is real, monster. <laughs> um, yeah, but like to me, I I almost don't feel like serial killer movies are horror movies because they're like, no, those people really exist. Like, this is just a fucked up drama to me. But maybe that's but just I, like my own thing. I don't know. I also think sometimes in you know, sometimes real life is much more horrifying than what we can make up, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's what, that's the thing. I like horror movies because it's like fantastical. If it's too real, then like Jesus, man, like I don't want to see that. Yeah. <laughs> but, but maybe that's just me. Cause I know like genre is pretty much just something for the critics and like distributors to kind of carve out. But I was just curious how you kind of fell on the, on the fence if you if you consider zodiac or silence of the lambs a horror movie then maybe you would consider this a horror movie so yeah i i mean it all just comes down to preference and either way it's a really good movie i really enjoyed it uh the whole time i still feel like jim cummings has this little uh will forte feeling to him (laughs) Did, did you get that at all yeah unpack that a little more i think i know what you mean but i'm just curious what i i I think not just his voice, but like his um, sort of like a proud idiot sort of thing about yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I mean, he still is it. He's still his own thing. But if people are looking for kind of a reference point, 
um that's not that's not too far off base there's like like a more grounded will forte yeah yeah there's a little more like sadness into uh to the characters that jim has played so far that i've seen from thunder road to to this so yeah yeah and and like going from this you know i saw this i was really blown away loved it look up jim cummings and then um I'd actually heard of Thunder Road from several friends who said it destroyed them. They were like <laughs> talking about uh, movies in one of the Facebook groups I'm in. I think uh, it, I think the Facebook group's actually called Movie Boner. So uh, head over there. It's a lot of really, really fun conversation about movies. And uh, someone posted a thread like, what's one movie that never fails to make you cry? And uh, someone had constantly been hyping up Thunder Road. Mm-hmm. And I saw it on Prime and I thought... You know, oh, it's the same director. I really liked him. Uh, I really liked Wolf of Snow Hollow. And now I got to check this out. And I watched it and I was like, I text you. I'm like, oh, we got to talk a little bit about this one, too. Because <laughs> holy shit, man, this is really, really good, too. Yeah, I think I was, uh, God, it was like three or four in the morning. I was up with the kids so that uh, my wife could sleep. And I was like, yeah, I'll just watch a little bit. And God damn it. Like, I almost finished the whole thing. And uh I was like, no, okay, I've really got to find a good stopping point. And it's really well done. Um, this is the kind of thing that if Jim Cummings ever listens to this, uh, my heart goes out to you on this level. I don't mean to point this out because um, I saw the short at uh, Indie Grits. Uh, and, you know, you talk about like films that are being programmed with your stuff. You go, oh, damn, uh, I'm humbled that I'm, I'm in this field uh, with the same person. But I saw his short version of it. And he had the permission, I guess, to play the Bruce Springsteen song that's so pivotal to the title of the movie um, in the short. And it it was just emotionally devastating in this like perfect way. And so when I started the feature version of it, I have to say I was a little bummed that I guess he probably couldn't afford the rights to use the actual song. So the actual song isn't in the feature version, but it was in the short. So uh, I was a little bummed about that. Uh, again, Jim Cummings, I get it as, because uh, they have different licensing deals. If it's a short and you're not making any money, they would probably finally like, yeah, go ahead use it. But for a feature, if you're probably going to make some money, they probably weren't going to budge. So, um, but the, but I will say, yeah, the rest of the feature Oh my God, like I was hooked and it was so good. Uh, and it just seems like a similar or the same character in right. way, is in the Wolf of Snow Hollow, which was kind of cool. Like th- this is like a more, we're just further down the timeline a little bit because his daughter in uh, Wolf of Snow Hollow is a little older than his daughter in Thunder Road. Um, but it's a lot of the similar kind of, angst from an alcoholic police officer which i just thought was so perfect in a genre film like i didn't begrudge him at all like oh did you just redo this and add this like werewolf angle i was like this is kind of cool just like every other a lot of filmmakers are exploring some of the same material in different ways over the course of their career it's just like this is something you're still unpacking and it was um so it's kind of cool to see thunder road and now since I watched them in reverse order, I feel like now I need to rewatch Wolf of Snow Hollow. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. yeah. Me too. Like I, like I said, I'd heard this was devastating and I just decided the other night, uh, just so we could talk a little bit about it on the podcast. Uh, Nikki and I were hanging out in the basement and I was like, 
I'm going to toss a movie you want to watch. It? She's like, sure. Mm-hmm. And then she, she's like, so what, what are we watching? And I explained it. And she's like, why are we watching this? And I explained <laughs> it, you know, and, and, uh, sometimes, you know, she's either, it, it's pretty easy to read when she's like into something or not. Cause you know, if she's not into something, she'll put on her, like in her earbuds or she'll leave the room and go do like laundry or something. But she was like hooked right away. And mm-hmm. like this one, is i don't know like maybe it's just it is weird because it feels like it's in the same cinematic universe like you said the same you know it could be the same character carrying from one film to the other it's basically this one the story is a little more simple it's a a cop there's no werewolf but it's a cop who's dealing with alcoholism the death of his mother and a a divorce and his relationship with his daughter which all sort of ties in together Mm -hmm. um starts off with a pretty a really long is it like a 12 minute uncut scene yeah i mean that was that's the big hook about the short and i highly encourage everyone to check it out i mean the short's available on vimeo but all shot in one take of this guy at his mother's funeral and like the thing that's so devastating about it, and this is, is the thing that makes Thunder Road so good and The Wolf of Snow Hollow, is you recognize the awkward pain that people go through and the way they behave when they're under duress is just, it's not the usual Hollywood stuff that we see in a way. Like people are quirky, they're weird, they're not steady, and like grief and the way they handle stress just like, it's different for everybody and it's very unique. And uh, so the, the, the opening shot to the movie is the same as the short just sans the, the song. Um, and like, he does this weird dance because that's what his mom would have liked. And he's singing thunder road and uh, it's awkward and uncomfortable. And he keeps making like asides to his daughter, like, Hey, come here. Or, I'm so sorry. Or I'm <laughs> screwing this all up. I mean, it's everything that like we've been there. Like we've either been him uh, when we're like really just broken or we've seen other people in that way. And so that's like what I think keeps this stuff relatable and so interesting between both of these movies. Yeah. He talked a little bit about how for both films, you know, cause uh, on the podcast, I sort of asked him about the balance of being the writer director and starring in it. And, you know, he's had no formal training as far as acting goes, but he was pretty much like he knew what he wanted out of this character. So he's like, I guess Mm -hmm. I'll just do it myself. And he said he would just basically, if he was doing little things that he had to do in life, like shower, cook, uh, the things in between writing, he was basically, uh, rehearsing the characters over and over and over again uh rehearsing his character and then before shooting thunder road he recorded the whole script doing all the voices for each character so he could send it to all the cast and crew so they sort of understood what he had in mind for their character which is insane Hmm. Uh, but he talked about how he's like i'm not a good actor but i just practiced a lot like he's like if i'm in a shower i'm doing the opening model i'm doing the dance i'm doing the you know the opening mm-hmm. monologue he's doing everything just constantly constantly practicing it and it's just like you know that's so rad that you know he's just trying so it's like he's working really hard at making this as good as it is and it shows at the end yeah i mean i i feel like minorly exhausted by myself when i'm constantly like rehearsing a project in my head uh i can't imagine and that's just from like a producer director sometimes cinematographer perspective but i couldn't imagine you know on top of all that 
then oh I'm going to perform in this so I also have to like be overthinking and overanalyzing and that's just it, it is really impressive that he's able to successfully pull this off I mean even you know translating Thunder Road from the short to the feature and that still carrying over because I think a lot of people, they, they might try and use a successful short to transition to a feature, but then sometimes they're just good at making shorts and they can't sustain a whole feature length movie. And so I think that's the thing that made the feature length version of Thunder Road so impressive too, is I had this kind of prior knowledge of the short and then to see him really stick the landing um, and then get people like Bacon Blair, who is in um, Green Room and Blue Ruin to come in in a supporting role and Mm -hmm. um he really like got a good cast around him and um i i think it's it's always good to see these like um indie low budget features like stick the landing so they're good and you know they actually finished it it was just and they're you know low budget you go okay yeah there's still a way to do this it's hard everyone's first feature is hard but it's always nice to see people like do it. <laughs> so Yeah. He said that everybody after the success of the short, you know, it obviously was winning awards at all the short festivals and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and when he talked, he's like, Oh, I'm going to do a feature. Like everybody he talked to was like, don't do it. Like yeah. you, you struck, you know, you, you struck gold one time. You're not, it's, it's not going to happen again. You're going to fuck it up and you're going to bury yourself. You have this momentum, do a different project. You know, yeah. use that momentum and create something original. And he's like, no, I have this idea about this cop. I want to expand the story. I had a whole story, but I just got to do the short. Now I want to do the feature. And mm -hmm. uh, it made its budget of $200,000 back uh, in its first week playing in 67 theaters in France where it was a sleeper hit, which is wild. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I can't remember. I'll have to look up more like how he found that distributor. But yeah, it was kind of a weird thing where even though he had like some of the backing of Sundance, I think even for the short version, he definitely had the backing of uh, Sundance uh, for the feature version. And so normally with a deal like that, you would screen it at Sundance and then a distributor would probably snap it up. Um, mm -hmm. So that's kind of curious that he didn't get his initial launch where it was made here in the States that like first it picked up over there. So uh I guess this is a good note for everyone to look at French distributors because, like, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought about that. <laughs> so. And uh, Nick Cage is a huge fan of this movie. He called Jim wow. Cummings. He, he called personally called Jim Cummings after seeing it, and according to Cage, they instantly became friends. And uh, in a Q and A at the Roxy Cinema in New York, Nicholas Cage said movies like this one is what keeps him passionate about making films, which is like Whoa. what a compliment! Holy shit. That's awesome. Yeah, I love it. I loved reading that. It's cool that, you know, I know people love to rag on Cage a lot. People forget that he is a good actor. He just gets stuck in a lot of bad projects. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm constantly telling people, practically throwing copies of extra, extra copies of Bringing Out the Dead that I found at thrift stores to like, yes. you know, you need to watch this. Nicolas Cage is good. I mean, even, uh, even before, around the same time he was becoming a meme uh he did joe which um who was the director of that who did midnight special i think as well yeah i know who you're talking i can't think of the name yeah but i, know what I you're mean talking about. He, he is doing a lot of like weird stuff but i it's funny that you say that though because like i can see 
I can see Nick Cage being into that uh, to to Cummings's performance because it is like oh, it's slightly, manic, yeah, yeah, that slight eccentric. It's not as Nick Cage as as maybe we we might actually be accidentally leading anyone to believe, but um, I could see it on the continuum. So. Oh yeah, well I mean that scene where he's fired from the police station because he oh, pulls yeah. the gun out, like because you know he lost his daughter and he shows up at the station because his partner uh, told him that he got rid of the video of him at his mom's funeral and that that's a huge blowout. He said that was one of the hardest films to see because that's another one where you know he has a really long monologue where he's very yeah. angry and screaming. He said not only was it tough uh, just just to get that whole thing down, but to do it over and over again and not blow out his vocal cords. Cause he's very angry and screaming and yeah, you know, it was tough on him, but really, really a very powerful scene. You know, it's funny. I mean, this probably extends beyond just uh, because of the uh, pandemic, this probably extends beyond just people uh, teaching. Cause like I've been teaching remotely um, for the remainder of last uh, the spring of 2020. And then before I went on paternity leave, like, we've been doing film production classes and a film studies class remotely. And uh, like, you have to have this performance uh, on. And and I don't know if this is like that for everybody else in their field, but you know, it gives me a whole new respect for the energy levels that you have to maintain when you're in front of the camera, you know? So like when I'm teaching, I'm trying to like have the energy that I would as if we were actually in person and like, you're trying to reach the audience through that damn stupid lens. So imagining having to do that and you're the director of a movie and doing a really crazy long intense scene. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel like I have a better glimpse of that now because of the pandemic, uh, but total respect. Cause I can't imagine exactly <laughs> how much work. And I hope he only had to do a couple of takes cause oh, I couldn't imagine having to do like six of those or something. Yeah, I mean, this this movie's quite a bit more devastating to me to watch uh compared to Wolf Snow Hollow, but I what a I think it's a great double feature if you, you know, yeah. haven't seen either of these and you're somehow made it this far into the podcast. Uh, I recommend maybe watching them in order like Thunder Road then followed by Wolf of Snow Hollow. Uh not that one's a palate cleanser by any means. They're both sort of uh mm-hmm. downers at times, but they also have some great humor. I when I turned on thunder road that opening scene um up and down you're like you're cringing but you're also sort of laughing but you're also feel so bad for him yeah Uh, very just one of the most memorable openings i can think of in a long time and i i haven't seen the short so i'm excited to go check that out i'm i'm going complete reverse order i'm starting newest yeah well and i think this is a good sign you know like we saw wolf of snow hollow and both of us were like you know i really should check out thunder road and uh, I, I think I was going to do it even without the prompting of, of the podcast. Um, but that was definitely a little extra help. But like, I liked the Wolf of Snow Hollow enough that I really wanted to check out Thunder Road finally. So yeah, I think wh- whatever sounds uh, best to you, if you want to hell even go to the short, then go to Wolf of Snow Hollow, you know, I think, I think you'll get a sense of what you're in for. And then decide if you like it and, you know, you want to go back for second or, or thirds. Um, any word on when his other movie is coming out then? Because I haven't heard about this one. I don't. He didn't say on the podcast like he didn't give a date, but okay. uh, 
he sort of he's he you know they said they filmed it and got done well before the pandemic happened so i imagine they're sort of chilling on it uh it's called the the beta test and he said Hmm. it's about a about serial killer in hollywood so it sort of hopefully you know not hopefully but i mean it sounds like it's going to branch off and do something uh completely new and i'm excited for it i'm very excited for it it'd be funny to see jim cummings play a character like uh jake gyllenhaal in nightcrawler that's immediately what i'm envisioning is like that weird awkwardness then projected onto not being on the side of the law anymore <laughs> yeah he's definitely in it and i'm pretty sure he's the lead again um Mm-hmm. but i imagine just like sort of everything right now it's in limbo and waiting yeah. to see what to do and i imagine they were probably waiting to see how uh wolf of snow hollow did you know and mm-hmm. uh you know obviously probably didn't make a whole lot because it just did the uh the drive-in theaters but i think i'm hopeful that with a great reviews it's getting and lots of press it's getting and he's been on several podcasts and stuff that you know, it doesn't at all slow down his career because I'm stoked to see what this guy does in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting uh, time industry wise because like how long if if you go straight to P, what is it premium VOD is the way they're they're marketing it now. If, yeah. if you go straight to that, if you're not doing stuff and you're not releasing it in theaters, then like you know what what's the shelf life? Is it um, cause usually it's dictated by like how long you can rent the theaters out for, you know, a month long run or two month long run, and then you move it down a notch and then a notch from there. But if you're starting on streaming and you're going to end on streaming, then is the shelf life a little longer. So I think they released it in like mid October, you know, are, would they invest a bunch of money in marketing it through the winter, you know, instead mm-hmm. of just like, Oh, just six weeks. And then, you know, we'll see. So, um, yeah, hopefully, you know, it keeps gaining momentum. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I'm just stoked to see what else he does. I'll keep mm-hmm. checking out his work and anticipating. It's just, I was taken back while listening to that podcast when he, even the interviewer was like, you know, what's next for you? He's like, Oh, I already finished a new sort of horror movie uh, <laughs> called the beta test. And he's like, what you mean? Like, you mean yeah. you like, finished working on like writing it he's like nope i wrote direct it's like uh he is co-writer and a co-director this time uh has pj mccabe is a uh another director that's working on it with him so uh should be interesting yeah it's that uh robert rodriguez uh mentality where he was saying yeah hurry up and get another thing going in case the thing that you're about to release is a dud and i think also just so you're not just sitting around waiting and hoping that that thing you did is going to bring you everything in the world you're you're already making your own luck i guess on the next project so um yeah yeah i I, I had a similar conversation some people were um at the university were like yeah i don't know they're some people are saying they want extended tenure deadlines because of the pandemic and i was like i'm gonna keep working so i would just rather hurry up and get it out of the way because i'm still making stuff like i have to I have to process all of this, so I'm going to be making work no matter what. So <laughs> sounds yeah. very similar. It sort of made me think of uh, me and Noah and I talked about it a little bit on the the podcast for the guest, 
where Simon Barrett, they were talking about how they had just finished filming your next and went right into the guest and uh, your next was in theaters while they were filming. And so they would like hop on a plane and go do press for your next and then fly back on set and film. And they were like never sleeping and they were shooting uh, the guest. And then they get a phone call from like Lionsgate. Who's like, yeah, really sorry. It's, it's underperforming. It's not doing well. And they're like stressing, but they're Mm -hmm. like, we're we're already shooting their next movie. So we've got that locked down. Like they, they're not going to shut us down right now. Yeah. But uh, then they got a call like one day on set and they're like, we were just at the theater and Quentin Tarantino was sitting at your necks and he was cackling the entire time. He fucking loved it. He was having a blast. So that like boosted their spirits, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's also a good way just to, to, to hedge your bets there. I mean, it was similar to, um, I was like, I was editing rubber town. It was supposed to be on my thesis film and the only thing I was working on, but then I was like, yeah, but I'm only editing right now. It's kind of killing me. Like, and then I started writing the woods and then we were in production while I was supposed to be finishing post on rubber town. And, uh, you know, that same year I was like working on two or three things. And then someone was like, I don't, one of the professors was like, I think we need to set up a rule where you're not allowed to work on anything else. I was like, no, th- I need to turn <laughs> off from one and work on the other just to like, you know, you're just exercising different muscles. So I could see, but that is a little nutty. Like if you're in the middle of production and then going and doing press tours, that's crazy. But I guess if you could afford that uh, studio financed horror film life, then maybe that's all right. <laughs> yeah. I remember uh, Spielberg talking a little bit about how he was struggling with Schindler's list because they were editing Jurassic park at the same yeah. time and, and switching off from one to the other, you know, was really a hard thing for him to do to go in and watch, watch, the uh, cuts of Jurassic park and then go right back on the set for Schindler's list. He's like, you know, you, your brain doesn't work like where you can go from a dinosaurs to Holocaust like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it you'd really have to kind of be uh, careful about that, I guess, depending on the, uh, the project that you're on. But yeah, I think that's also the other thing, like for me is like uh, documentaries can kind of take a long time. Whereas like with narrative stuff, you're supposed to be in and out really quick, but um although speaking of like workaholic i may have another idea that i'll have to talk to you about off the air so (laughs) i'm already mulling over like what can i do safely that would be a feature under covid because who knows how long it's going to be before it's safe so (laughs) well hey i'm totally not recording right now if you want to tell us about it no um sidebar but it's funny we were talking about the wolf of snow hollow and i realized there are some things that i was already thinking about doing before the movie that i guess they were doing similar so yeah. Anyways. So where can people find some of your shorts? I know that they're online and you said you had some distribution on some of them. So uh, shoot people where they can watch some of your stuff. Yeah. Um, I got really lucky. So the Derby uh, is a, the short knock. So it's not your usual portrait of the Kentucky Derby. It's kind of a social class exploration of it. Um, so anyways, uh, very thankful that uh, uh, Short of the Week picked it up. Uh, also the Atlantic. Um, so you can find that on YouTube. It's just called the Derby. Um, Alter, they're known for doing horror shorts. They just picked up the woods um, just last year. And we're now over 100,000 views. Woo! Um, and then my website, it's the RemingtonSmith.com. And so... This new project, um, I'm hoping to have it out either by the end of this year, and it's short, 
Um, it'll be the end of this year, or early next. Um, I just need to, we, we need to add the score and uh, shop arounds. Like it's hard with shorts, um, how you want to figure out your release status, but um, it'll be out ASAP because it's kind of a mix of like stuff about the coronavirus, the pandemic, and then what it was like this summer with, you know, my wife pregnant and like how all these things kind of um, coalesce and will hopefully be this kind of cathartic um, ride for people thinking about how this year has been. So it'll be definitely be something that will be really cool to show your son when he's old enough. Like, yeah, I mean, it was, it was interesting to shoot kind of knowing that, and I'm sure there are going to be other projects that relate to this, uh, this kind of new life. And, and that's part of what is kind of driven this interest in documentary for me is, uh, you know, an undergrad, I thought I was going to be a high school history teacher. And, and I'm, I moved around a lot and lost a lot of mementos and things like that. So I think I'm always trying to hold on to the present and therefore the past. Um, and so I, I think, um, you know, documentary is just like an extension of that. Um, but yeah, hopefully other people will like it too. We've, we've gotten some feedback from, uh, people who didn't know anything about the project, didn't know me. And, you know, I got feedback from them and it's been pretty good responses so far. So, um, that should be out hopefully in the next few months. Excellent. Well, did you have anything else you wanted to, uh, say as we wrap up about these two movies and, uh, any more thoughts on, on what's next? And, um, Let's see. Uh, I'm trying to think if there are any other films that kind of came to mind while I was watching. Um, uh, I guess it, it also happens during winter. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of actually the remake of Let the Right One End, which I know is a little controversial, but um, Matt Reeves, who did Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Cloverfield, or War for the Planet of the Apes and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and now the new Batman movie, um, he did the remake called Let Me In. Um, we're, we're sliding into winter. It's kind of a winter horror movie. This one's about vampires. So, uh, recommend people check that out and wear masks, stay safe. Uh, tell your mom, no about Thanksgiving. You gotta stay home. Don't spread the COVID. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm going to have to have you come back. Cause I know that you had a lot of first time classic watches over the Halloween season yes. mm-hmm. and that could be its own episode. I didn't want to even start going into that because you know people only listen for so long and uh i know between the two of us that one would be a long one so like i said i'm gonna have you back but thanks so much for joining me tonight on this one um it's so good to hear from you it's it's great to hear that you're doing well you're you're still working and that you're now a father again congratulations (laughs) that's crazy yeah yeah and i guess i would also say like i know not everyone has all the free time that some people have with covid but man, just make something, do that creative thing that you're interested in, whether it's just like cooking, is it writing, is it painting? Just like the, you, if you're dealing with some stuff like everyone else is like, just find that sort of expressive outlet. And, you know, it doesn't have to be for like career stuff. I started making movies cause I just wanted to hang out with friends and do something silly with zombies. So, um, you know, now's the perfect time. If, if you've got a little bit of time to explore that. So Excellent. Well, thanks again, and we'll talk to you next time on First Time Podcast. Thanks, Dad. Thank you again for listening to the First Time Podcast. If you haven't already, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and give us a like on Facebook. 
Follow or subscribe to the First Time Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts. A huge thank you goes out to Scott Schreiner of Weezer for our intro and outro music. Last but not least, do us a favor and share this podcast with someone else who might enjoy it. We appreciate your support. You're listening to the Prescribed Films Podcast Network, home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment. The shows on this network all have a common goal providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media. The PFPN hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy. Visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com. Thanks for listening.